wonder if you'd turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43, please. Isaiah chapter 43. We're going to be reading from verse 1. Isaiah chapter 43. And let's begin at the first verse. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Saviour. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee, since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honourable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee, and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east, and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from, af- from far, and my daughters from the ends of the earth even everyone that is called by my name. For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yea, I have made him. Amen. Well, praise the Lord for his word. And what a passage of scripture this is for us to meditate upon, particularly in these days where there's so much trouble about us and uh, things are changing, aren't they? We have this rather strange phrase called the new normal which apparently we're entering into. But the fact remains that the word of God abides forever. And the word doesn't change. And so therefore our confidence isn't in the circumstances we find ourselves in, but in the reality of the person of the Lord Jesus, whom we find ourselves in, if we're born again of the Spirit of God. Nothing's changed here. The fact remains that our lives are hidden with Christ in God, according to Colossians chapter 3. So we needn't fear the days we live in. Uh, We needn't fear what men say. Our only fear is to be the living God. And the wonderful thing about the fear of the Lord is there's no superstition in it. There's no real fearfulness in it, in a negative sense. The fear of the Lord is clean, And it doesn't bring us into bondage or cripple us as every other fear does. But the fear of the Lord actually brings you into liberty. It actually liberates you. Because if you fear the Lord, you lose every other fear. And this is the wonderful thing. Um, If we know and love the Lord and fear him, we have nothing else to fear. So let us take his word to heart and just be careful when anybody says anything uh, that is contrary to the word of God. Don't accept what is contrary to the scriptures. Stay with what God says, and you can't go wrong. Hold fast to what the Lord says. Don't allow the enemy to interpret your surroundings. Don't allow the enemy to dictate how you 
Walk your way through this situation that you find yourself in. Allow your confidence to be in the Lord and his word. Uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, the scriptures say. So we've got to let that dwell in us. We've got to be careful that the news that we imbibe doesn't affect our serenity in the Lord Jesus. doesn't affect our peace with God. Because whatever news comes out, it's subject to God's control, authority, and nothing passes without the Lord seeing. Nothing comes to pass without the Lord allowing that thing to come to pass. And our lives are safe in him. This is why in these days, friends, we need to know our relationship to God. And we need to know as born-again believers what has happened to us. One of the great problems with us as believers is that the enemy preys upon our lack of knowledge. That's the problem. We don't know what the Lord's actually done for us. And we don't meditate on what we've become. We meditate on what the enemy says about us. And we allow him to run his commentary over our lives rather than sticking with what the scriptures say. And if we were to really understand with greater knowledge, with spiritual revelation, what has happened to us, what we've come into in the Lord Jesus, we would not be moved. It takes a lot to move a believer who's come to a steady assurance through the knowledge of what has happened to him or her when they're born again of the Spirit of God. But the enemy wants you to skate over these things so that you don't get a grasp of it. You know, the problem with Israel, when you look at the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, the problem with Israel was they went into captivity for lack of knowledge. It's the lack of knowledge amongst God's people that makes them candidates for deception. And there's so much deception in our day. What is going to keep you firm? Well, the Lord is going to keep you firm. But how are you going to know a steadiness in your walk with God? How are you going to know that sense of not easily being beaten up, as it were, by what the enemy says to you? Only if you know by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, what the Lord has already wrought in your life. If you look at Romans 6, and not now, but if you look at Romans 6 and you look through Romans 7, Paul is often saying to the Romans, do you not know? It's like a phrase that comes out, or he says this, knowing this, knowing this. Do you not know this has happened to you? That's the kind of way that Paul speaks to the church in Rome. For example, he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who've died with, with Christ live any longer, died to sin, live, live any longer in it? Or do you not know? Do you see what I mean? So Paul is saying, don't you know this? Don't you know this? Don't you know this? This goes on into chapter 7. Obviously, Paul knew these things. He wouldn't be saying to them, do you not know, if he didn't know himself, would he? Now listen, he goes on saying, do you not know, do you not know, through chapter 7, through 6, through 7, you get to chapter 8. 
Go through chapter 8. And right at the end of chapter 8, Paul says, For I am persuaded that nothing can separate us. Paul was persuaded about it because he knew things. But if you don't know what has happened to you when you've been born again of the Spirit of God, you're going to come to wrong conclusions. You're going to be under condemnation of the enemy or living under that kind of condemnation of the enemy because you haven't properly considered what the Lord has brought you into. Let me ask you this. Have you realized this? That you've passed from death into life. Are you aware of that fact? Are you aware that sin no longer has dominion over you? Are you beset by sin? Are you fearing sin? In a wrong kind of way. But you're under grace. Which means you have the power of God in you to resist the temptation to sin. Now, unbeliever is a slave to sin. But now you've been born again of the Spirit, you're meant to be a slave to righteousness. The difference that has happened in your life. It only takes three chapters to have a little look. Why don't you go back to chapter five and bless yourself even more? Meditate on these things. Dwell on these things. The reason why we're in such a state at times and we panic and we find ourselves in all kinds of confusion is because we've never really come into the revelation of what God has done for us in Christ and what God has done in us. Well, in Isaiah chapter 43, we read something of what the Lord has done for his people. In the primary context, it's speaking about the people of Israel. But also, as believers, we come into these things also. And last week, we looked at the fact that we are the Lord's. If we're born again of the Spirit, we are His. And we looked at the fact that we are His firstly by creation. And we remember we looked at Psalm 100. He has made us, not we ourselves. And we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which is planned beforehand for us to walk in. We talked about that. We talked about the fact that He is forming us. We're His by His forming us. He's conforming us to the image of His Son. He's fashioning us, he's changing us, he's breaking us and he's building us. It's all of him, this forming that's going on in our lives. And then we got to the next part, but we didn't because we ran out of time. So what is the next part? We've run out of time already. What is the next point? Isaiah 43, what does it say? Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. Now, Notice this is the first command the Lord brings in this passage. He's already telling these people that he's created and formed them. Then he gives them this command, fear not, fear not. Many of us are in difficult circumstances right now and the temptation is to fear. 
And the word of God says, do not fear. And then the Lord gives reason to his people why they shouldn't fear. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. Well, what does this word redeem mean? To redeem means to buy back. That's what redemption has to do with. It has to do with the Lord buying back his people, as it were. It has to do with them being purchased by him. And this word redemption occurs so many times in the Old Testament, specifically to do with the people of Israel. It is frequently used of redeeming men and redeeming us out of slavery. When you're looking in this particular passage in Isaiah 43, it's speaking specifically of Israel being redeemed out of Babylon and out of the hands of slavery. It's speaking about them coming from all the ends of the earth, as it were, back to the land that God had destined them to dwell in. But there's another place where it speaks of the Lord redeeming Israel. And that's back in Exodus when we read about them being redeemed from slavery to Pharaoh and being enslaved to Egypt. And specifically that passage is a picture for us of our deliverance in salvation. So if you turn back to Exodus chapter 6, please, I'm just going to read from verse 1, and we'll find this word redemption come up in verse 6. It says from verse 1, Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. And I have also established my covenant with them, to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you, with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you in unto the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you, uh, sorry, I will give it you for, an, for a heritage I am the Lord. Marvellous passage of scripture speaking of the Lord affirming his covenant to his people and that he will bring them out from Egypt. And it says specifically in verse 6, I will redeem you. I will bring you out. I will bring you. It speaks very much redemption in terms of deliverance and specifically in this context in terms of deliverance, from being under Pharaoh. And the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron to go and speak these words. Notice what he says, I will bring you out 
I will rid you out of their bondage. I will redeem you. Three times within verse 6, we get this little phrase, I will, which is covenant terminology. It's what you said when you got married. I will. It's a promise. It's an assurance that God will do what he said he would do. And he says, I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. Then at the beginning of verse 7, and I will take you to me for a people. See, that's the outworking of redemption. The Lord is bringing them out, is buying them out of Egypt to bring them to himself. When you purchase something in a shop, let's say, something precious, you pay for it and you take what you've purchased to yourself. And in a sense, that's what the Lord has done here with the Israelites. He was redeeming them out of Egypt that they might be a people unto himself, that they might be a people that are brought to him, not simply brought to a new way of living by means of commandments, but that they realize they are brought to a person, to God. And now the same is true of you and me. When we've been redeemed, it's like this. We were in slavery to Pharaoh. And we were enslaved to a greater than Pharaoh, Satan himself. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. We were by nature children of wrath. We were used of the enemy. The enemy could do almost as it were, as he wills in our thinking and our actions. We were enslaved to sin. We were sold to sin. We were enslaved, we were in bondage. There's nothing we could do to get ourselves out from under the hand of our Pharaoh. Pharaoh in scripture here is speaking of the enemy. But remember, he's only a type. The enemy is greater than Pharaoh. And we, like the Israelites, were enslaved in bondage. And there's nothing they could do to get them out. Nor did they think they were going to get out. And then Moses and Aaron came. And the Lord sent them. Moses, the spokes, spokesman for God. Well, Aaron really did much of the talking. But it was in order to get the Israelites out and be redeemed for a people to God. Now, the amazing thing is, in this particular passage, the Lord says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And you and I, were under the burdens of the powers of darkness. We were harassed. Our minds were darkened. We were in bondage. And then the Lord sent a deliverer. But just as Satan is greater than Pharaoh, we have a greater than Moses to come to deliver us. We have the Lord Jesus himself. Moses in type speaks of the Lord Jesus in a number of ways, but the Lord Jesus comes as the ultimate rescuer to deliver us from being under the grip of Pharaoh. Now, you may have thought to yourself, well, I could have turned to the Lord, you know, a number of years ago. I could have turned to the Lord when I wanted to, as it were. You weren't in a position to be able to turn to the Lord, nor was I. It wasn't that just we thought, well, I turned to the Lord in a few years' time, when you're enslaved to something, you can't do anything about it. When you're dead in trespasses and sins, you're dead. You can't decide suddenly. A dead person can't decide, I think I'm going to make myself alive. You know, it doesn't work like that, does it? 
you and I were disobedient to God. We were haters of God. There was none of us that did what was right. We were enslaved to sin. And the Lord came to redeem us, to buy us. The matter of redemption runs throughout the course of the whole scriptures. If you go from Genesis right through to Revelation, you'll find that redemption is all the way through. You find redemption as the main theme in the book of Ruth. You find redemption in the Psalms. You find redemption with the children of Israel. And you find redemption is all part of the new covenant. It's everywhere in the scriptures. So what does it mean to be redeemed of the Lord? Well, we've looked at the fact that just as Israel were redeemed out of Egypt, we've been redeemed by the Lord ourselves from being under the grip of our Pharaoh. But what does it mean to be redeemed? You see, redemption isn't something that comes easily. The word of God says in Psalm 49 verse 7, None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their soul is precious and it ceaseth forever, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. Who can buy the soul of his brother? Who can purchase someone to live forever and ultimately never to die? It's too costly. Nobody can pay such a price. There's nobody who can purchase your redemption for it. You, you and I, before we're believers, are in that slave market of sin. And we are not coming out. And we are heading for hell unless somebody comes and pays the price to win us back to God. And there's nobody who was sufficient to do it. Nobody who is able to do it. Because we're all sinners. And we need a perfect sacrifice to pay the price for the ransom of our souls. Romans 7.14 shows us that we were sold under sin. How did the Lord purchase us? You know it, don't you? 1 Peter 1 verse 18, let's turn there. One Peter one verse eighteen, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It took the blood of Jesus. For you to be redeemed and brought back to God. For me to be redeemed and brought back to God. The cost of it on behalf of the Lord is immeasurable, isn't it? To think that his blood was spilt, that such a price had to be paid. 
But the fact remains that all of us had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were deserving of hell. We're deserving of the wrath of God. Deserving of his judgment. And the Lord Jesus intercepts and intercedes for us at Calvary. And his blood is shed on the cross. So much depends upon the blood of Jesus. Let me rephrase that. Everything depends on the shedding of the blood of Jesus. There's no redemption without the shedding of the blood. This blood speaks to us of better things than that of Abel. Abel's righteous Abel, blood cried out from the ground and resulted in God's judgment upon Cain. But the Lord Jesus' blood cried out from the ground and resulted in our justification from our sin. Amazing. The blood speaks. If you turn with me to the book of Romans, please, in chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And we're going to read verse 22. Let's read from verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now notice here that Paul says that we can know a justification which is free. In other words, to be justified freely means that it's a gift. You don't have to pay to be justified. In fact, you can't. But many people work for justification with God. Do you realize that? Even Christians. They work for their justification. And most religions, if not all, except for, of course, the Christian faith, which is different, you're always climbing up a ladder to get favor with God. You can never be good enough. You always have to climb, always trying to work to get some favor with a God, usually to appease him. Isn't that amazing? People live their lives trying to appease a God that isn't real. Now, what a disastrous way of living that is. You've got to feel for people in such a condition. What about those bound in Islam? What about those bound in all kinds of cults and everything? The Jehovah's Witnesses? 
They're no witnesses of Jehovah. What are they doing? They're trying to get points with God by knocking on doors and everything. It's a deception. It's a clear deception. But the motivation of religion all around the world is to try and get favour with God. This is what justification is all about. It means to be right with God. It actually means more, more than that in this particular passage. The word actually means to be approved by God. But you and I have a different mentality if we're born again of the Spirit of God. Even with those under the system of Roman Catholicism, it's a religion of works. And I feel for Catholics who are trying their best to please God, not knowing that they don't need to. More than that, not knowing that they can't. To those bound in other religions, the idea that you can be justified by God without doing anything would be considered blasphemous. Without the revelation of the cross, none of us would consider that the Lord would ever do this. It's scandalous. On one level, the cross is a scandal. Jesus should never have had to die because he hasn't done anything wrong. The only person that ever lived a perfect life is the one who pays the punishment for everybody else. And people say, oh, why does God do this to me? Why does God do that to me? The only person that had any right to complain was Jesus on the cross. And yet he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But what about this matter of justification? Let me ask you this question. Have you realized this, that when you were born again of the Spirit of God, you were freely justified before you'd done anything? Or are you working for your justification? For us, this is, the, this is so unnatural. That's why you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need your mind renewed. Otherwise, you'll go back to an old way of thinking. But don't be conformed to this world. Being conformed to this world doesn't simply mean doing licentious things. It means going back to trying to please God in your flesh. Doesn't it? For some people it would mean that. Don't be squeezed into the mold of the world. Don't, be, don't come under the traditions of men. Do you remember what Paul says in the book of Colossians? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. It's all to do with things that perish. And yet the believers there were getting into some of these things. 
getting into earthly things, worldly mindsets. Do you really think, for example, and believe me, there's Christians that get into this stuff, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but anyway. Not by you, but by uh, this funny stick to the side of me with people writing comments. Let me put it like this. Do you really think that you can gain more credit with God by not eating pork? There's Christians who do that. What are they doing? Slowly, their minds are coming under a wrong influence. They're going into justifying themselves. This verse in Romans chapter 3, it says that we are justified freely. How? By his grace. So you are justified freely this morning if you're born again of the Spirit. God declares you right in his sight. Not only right. Not only, it's not as though you, let's imagine that you came before the judge. You'd done something wrong. And somebody else says they'll pay for you. And you're acquitted, okay? But everybody knows that you did that thing which was wrong. They'd be saying, well, you've got off the hook, but we're looking at you now. That's not justification in the word of God. Justification goes beyond that. It's not only that I'm justified by means of the fact that Jesus has paid the penalty for me, so I don't have to pay the sin. It's not that I'm, I've escaped judgment and now the Lord is sort of frowning at me still. Justification in the word of God means that you are now approved by God in his sight. Are you aware of that this morning? You say, how is this possible? Think about it. Justified, approved. It means declared righteous, but it means that God now sees you in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. But you haven't paid for it. Then we go on to read this in verse 24. We are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, there did have to be a payment for you to be freely justified. If God justified you in your sins, it would have to mean that he justified sin which would make God unrighteous. But God is not unrighteous. There has to be the paying for your sin. There must. Otherwise, you can never be made right with God. 
But whilst everybody else is trying to please God and gain justification by their own good works or dead works, you have come to realize that all your works are as filthy rags and you can't do anything to gain God's approval. You've tried, but you've come to the understanding that actually you can't. When you come to the understanding that you can't, then you need a saviour. Somebody else has got to do it for you. Otherwise, you're damned to hell for all eternity. Then you saw Jesus. You beheld the Lamb of God. And you realise there's somebody who's taken my sin away. There's somebody who's done it for me. When he died on the cross, he was literally paying for me to be brought back to God. The price has been paid in four. The Lord Jesus didn't pay 98% of the purchase. He bought you lock, stock and barrel. He paid the ultimate price through his blood being shed. There's only one way that God could possibly justify you. A sinner, unclean, impure person. And that's through the redemption that is in the Lord Jesus. So the Lord Jesus has brought you out of the slavery house of sin and released you into the liberty of his salvation. Now, consider this. If God has justified you, do you understand now what this means? God sees you in his son. The Lord cannot approve you apart from his son. But he places you in his son. And so when he sees you, he sees his son. And the father approves of the son. He has accredited to you the righteousness of his son. And what he's doing in your life is imparting into your life the righteousness of his son so that you become like him. But the justification of your soul is not dependent on your part but on what you're clothed in. You have to think this, if you're tempted to fear and doubt and question your salvation, you can put it like this without fear of a lie. It is this. 
can the Father send his Son away to the cross again? Can the Father punish the Son a second time? Why do you think the Lord was so angry with Moses? He's striking the rock. He did it more than once. Completely shattered the image. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that that rock is Christ that gave us the water. That rock was struck once and the Lord Jesus will never, ever be struck again. It's paid in full. For your redemption. Now then you have to ask a question. If you be in Christ, you're a new creation, aren't you? And if you've been justified, that means you've been declared righteous with the justification of the life of Jesus. And Satan comes to you. Says you've done it this time. You've done it now. God's finished with you now. Look, you're not the person you were. It's over for you. All these things can come to us different ways. But if you realize what it means to be justified and that you didn't pay for it, it was purchased for you, what a difference that's going to make to your Christian life. So Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to just move on a little bit. Ephesians 1 verse 7. Let's read from verse I just want to read verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In him, you'll find this phrase, in him, is right the way through the book of Ephesians. And this first verse we looked at, verse 3, that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Paul goes on to describe what those spiritual blessings are, that we've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we in him we have redemption through his blood. It's these spiritual blessings. How little we meditate on the blessings we have in the Lord, and yet they're ours. And all the promises of God in the Messiah are yes and amen. They're yours for the receiving, for the building up of your soul. But so often we don't meditate on what we've been given. We don't look away 
unto Jesus. We look at our surroundings, our circumstances, or how we feel, and we don't meditate on what is ours in the Lord Jesus. Now, when you were born again of the Spirit, what happened to you was this. God the Father took hold of you, and he placed you in the Lord Jesus. And now Paul speaks from the perspective of us being in him, in him, in him, right through chapter 1. We have redemption in him. This redemption is ours. And yet how little we lay hold on it. Now I'm saying these things to you because by spiritual definition, what you have is yours in Christ. But you don't lay hold of it, some of you. What a strange thing it would be for somebody who is given bread never to eat it. But so many of us, the Lord comes to the table and he gives us of his blessings in the Lord Jesus. And you know what we say? We say, I couldn't possibly take this. I'm not good enough. I couldn't possibly feast on this. I've done this, that, and the other this week. I just feel I lost my temper the other day. And I can't possibly feed on the fact that the Lord Jesus is my redemption. Well, who's the one bringing the truth to you? It's the Lord. He's given you his word. And he's said, this is what I've done for you. This is yours. Why are you not feeding on me? Why are you not drinking of me? Why is it that you persist in constantly trying to win over my affection some other way other than by means of realizing that my son has done everything for you but this is where we're at so often our minds need to be renewed we need to constantly be meditating and feeding on the lord jesus feed on him as your redemption feed on him as your salvation as your peace as your liberty as everything this is what we're to do. In whom you have redemption through his blood. Paul says the same to the church at Colossae in chapter 1 and verse 14. I'll just read it to you. In whom we have redemption through his blood. Even the forgiveness of sins. You see this is all bound up in the redemption. Jesus has bought you, has purchased you by his blood. But with that purchasing comes the forgiveness of sins. And what is one of the chief things the enemy does? He reminds you of sins that you've committed in past times and you have to say to him, that is under the blood. Remind yourself, friends, that that sin has been paid for in full. Whatever sin is under the blood, is paid for in full. so many believers heads are down because they're not feeding on what is theirs by right not by what they've earned but by the fact that they've come into the salvation of the Lord now it's true to say that nobody can feed or receive the benefits of the Lord Jesus outside of the salvation of God but once you've been born of the spirit God has placed you in the Messiah in Christ and all that is in Christ is yours. 
When was the last time you fed upon these things? On Jesus as your justification, on Jesus as your righteousness, as Jesus as your peace, as Jesus as the means of your sanctification. We become weak and vulnerable because we don't meditate on the right things. Move on with me, please, to Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Let's read from verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Do you notice that the good works comes after the redemption? And we don't do good works to get redemption or to get saved or to be justified. We do good works because we've been justified and because we've been redeemed and out of the heart of thankfulness we just find ourselves wanting to please the Lord. But if you're trying to earn your salvation you'll find there's very little praise will come out of your life. But when you know that the Lord Jesus has done everything and you're secure in him thankfulness will abound out of your heart. What a wonderful scripture this is, friends. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. All iniquity. Not just some, but all. Praise the Lord for the redemption that is in him. But moving on as we come towards a close for today. What else do we find in the scripture about redemption concerning our salvation? Well, Galatians 3.13 and chapter 4, verse 4 and 5 speaks of the fact that we've been redeemed from the law. No longer under the law. Been bought from the law unto Christ. What's the law? It's the tutor to bring us to Christ. And we've been redeemed from that. But then it goes on to say about redemption in relation to the future. And so redemption isn't just something to do with us being saved from the past. It has to do with something to do with the future. So as we come to a close, let's consider a couple more scriptures. 1 Corinthians 1, please. 1 Corinthians 1. Just going to mention a couple more scriptures and then we're going to finish. 1 Corinthians 1. Going to read verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound those things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised, as God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 
Now, this matter of redemption here is speaking about the redemption yet to come. Notice the order of things. Wisdom, righteousness. When we're born again of the Spirit, the Lord Jesus becomes our righteousness. As we go on with him, we're sanctified until ultimately we're glorified. But here it uses the word redemption. But this ties in with what the scriptures say in Luke 21, 28, doesn't it? Luke 21 and verse 28. Verse 27 says, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. There's a redemption to come. This is still on the basis of the redemption won for us at Calvary. This shows us, friends, that the work of Calvary is so extensive. It hasn't just merely got to do, and I don't say merely to limit what happens to us when we're saved, but it hasn't only to do with when we're born again of the Spirit of God. Redemption has to do with what happens when Jesus comes again. So far-reaching is the salvation of the Lord. It doesn't just cover our beginning, but an end. It covers something yet to come. It has to do with glory. This is all part of the work of redemption. We're, we've been redeemed, but we will be redeemed. In what way will we be redeemed? Well, Romans 8.23 says this. Romans 8.23, if you turn there with me. Romans 8.23 Excuse me. Let's read from verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travelleth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. There's a redemption to come. But it's all been paid for at Calvary. We will be redeemed. What about Ephesians 1 verse 14? Ephesians 1 verse 14 speaks of the redemption yet to be. Let's read from verse 13. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption. Notice it's speaking about the future. Until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Wonderful. The same theme is mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4, and verse 30, but in a different context, and says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. You're sealed by the Spirit unto the day of redemption. There's a day of redemption coming. When your body is going to be transformed. You've been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus, and your spirit has been made alive to God. And you're being transformed. But the redemption is going to be completed, as it were, when finally we get our new bodies. 
and we are finally, completely, without any trace of sin whatsoever in our lives. It's going to happen one day. God's going to transform your lowly body. And if you die before he comes back, then he'll raise you up from the dead. And he'll give you a new body where you won't have any aches or pains. Whereby you will be without sin. What a day that's going to be. Do you know, the scripture speaks about us as being having three parts to us. Spirit, soul, and body. Your spirit is the place which communes with God. And God's spirit witnesses with our spirit that we're children of God. The soul is the area of the mind and the will and the emotions. All that need to be subjected to the purposes of God. We need our minds to be renewed. I think in these days we desperately need to be into the word because there's so many false teachings about and there's so many contrary teachings that subtly come through the airwaves. Even as you watch the news, there's a particular worldview that's being impressed upon you. And so many Christians are unwitting to this. And so they just imbibe everything that they see and they're not being transformed by the renewing of their mind. They're being conformed to the mind of the world. And that's a dangerous thing. Don't be conformed either simply to the mind of a Bible teacher's view. Allow the word of God to be your means of transformation. Meditate on it and the spirit will renew your mind. But your transformation is dependent on this area. If your mind is not being renewed, how are you going to be transformed? But unless you're into the word, how can you be renewed? Meditate daily on these things, on what has happened to you as you've been born again of the Spirit of God. Meditate on the fact of what God says in his word about redemption. About the fact that you've been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in the Lord Jesus. Think on these things. Whatever is good, whatever is pure, whatever's of good report, we're to think on these things. And so our minds will be renewed. Body, soul, and spirit is our salvation on the basis of the redemption, the purchasing of us. When Jesus was on the cross, he was purchasing you personally. He's dealing with all the sins and he was effectively crying out to the Father for your salvation. And he said, it is finished. It's complete. You don't need anything more to do by means of work. And that's why we're justified freely by means of the redemption of the Lord Jesus and our faith in the finished work of Calvary. There's no other way. Let me finish with these wonderful verses from 1 Thessalonians 5. I'm going to read from verse 23. 
And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, and soul and body be preserved blameless until or unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Why will he do it? Because you're such a good Christian. You're such a nice person. That's why he's going to do it, isn't it? What an insult to the work of Calvary that kind of thinking is. To even think that we would ever be good enough of ourselves to be in the presence of God. No, dear friends, there's only one way. And that's through faith in another person's goodness. In his redemption, we have been brought back to God. Benjamin mentioned in his prayer before we had the time in the word together about the shepherd that goes out. You know, the Lord Jesus has gone out for all of us. And he says in the word of God that he lays down his life for the sheep. That's what the shepherd does. And in having purchased you, We must remember the Lord Jesus is a very good keeper. If you purchase something that costs you everything to purchase, how careful you would be over the keeping of the purchase. If God has poured out his divine justice and wrath upon the Son. And the Son has laid down his life for the sheep. You can be sure the Lord Jesus is going to be in the business of watching over what he has. Because it cost him everything to have you. And the redemption that you have in him goes beyond you being born again of the Spirit of God. This is such a narrow view of thinking of redemption that it's just to do with the past. Redemption has to do with God seeing you coming through to his desired end. You see, it's not just about us escaping hell, friends. This is about God getting what he wants. A bride. All pure. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. For his son. And you and I are part of that. Can you believe it? Well, you've got to, but... <laughs> You're wrapped up in this incredible drama that isn't artificial, it's real. God has delivered you. God has redeemed you. That's why in Isaiah 43, we read these words. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. That's going to have to be next week. I've called you by name. You are mine. 
In other words, the Lord says over your life, I've paid for you. And I'm determined as a result of the cost and my love to see you through to the full end of that redemption. You and I should be looking forward to this. One day we're going to be perfect. Even me. Not because we're anything. But because those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorification. Amazing. Because of the redemption. Now can you see why it's an utter insult to try to work your way to gain favour with God. We don't do good works to get saved. We do good works because we've been saved. And we owe Jesus everything. Everything. That's why, singing that wonderful song, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Saviour all the day long, that should be a reality actually. You should be, and I should be, totally in song over the Lord Jesus all our lives. Because we're wrapped up in his redemption. I wonder whether you will take it to heart. Why not think of it like this? For Jesus' sake, don't get under condemnation. It cost him everything for you to be free from it. Why live under it? The enemy can't condemn you. You've been purchased. You're not even your own. You don't belong to yourself. Do you realize that? You're the Lord's possession. May the Lord help us to walk worthy of such a calling. Praise God he will enable us to. Next week we'll look at this matter of calling. It's all related with this matter of redemption and God's work in us. May the Lord bless you and encourage you to live in the good of what Christ has won for you. The Messiah, the Lord Jesus. We owe him everything. Let's pray. Lord, we do owe you everything. We want to pray that Lord, however weakly, or just through a smallness, Lord, you can break the bread and multiply it to each one of us. We ask, Lord, that you'd apply these truths to our hearts. That we would live in the light of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Lord, if we knew this redemption more fully, how could fear have a hold over us? Please, Lord, if there's anybody struggling with fear here, oh Lord, we pray, however weak my words may be, that you would graciously apply something of this word to their hearts. And may it be balm to them, Lord. Father, we pray, please lead us on with you in the days ahead. Help us to walk with you and to talk with you and to gain 
further ground in our understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, there'll be tea and coffee or cold drinks if you want around the back, I think. Otherwise, God willing, we will see you next week. Oh, there's the offering box as well, I've just been reminded.